My favorite time of the week is actually not Sunday morning. This is fun to get to do this, but my favorite time is Mondays. I get to teach our fellows. I walk them through theology and the Bible over the course of a year that we spend in a seminary level class. We have a great time together learning about God's word, learning about theology, learning about how to do ministry, and then they get trained so that they can go train others, so that they can become missionaries, so that they can become pastors, so that they can do all kinds of things for God's kingdom for the rest of their lives. I would love to have you come join our church as a fellow this coming year. If you've ever been interested about whether this is something God might call you to do, you can just grab one of these bookmarks in the foyer this morning. It says Grace Fellows. There's a website you can go to where you can get the application and all the information on our fellows program. So please check that out. If you're interested at all, applications are due February 19th. If you have any questions, come talk to me or someone here in the foyer. A lot of people wonder, how did I go from engineering to being a pastor? And it's our fellows program. I came and tried it out for a year. What's the harm in doing one year worth of ministry and seeing if I liked it? I did, so I stayed. And you can find out the same thing if you'll come join us. So I'd love to have you do that. All right, if you guys will pray with me, let's get ready for our time in the book of Matthew. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that this morning we get to look at Jesus's perfections. We get to see how perfect he was in every way. We get to see how pure he was, how faithful he was, how selfless he was, how patient he was. We thank you that your son is perfect. We thank you that he, in his perfection, still chose to die for imperfect people like us. He deserves so much better than that. We thank you for the perfection and the sacrifice of your son. We thank you this morning that we can look to Jesus as our perfect king, that we can trust in him and find strength in him. We pray, God, help us to be awake and alert to the incredible story of Jesus' temptation. Help us to see all that it has to teach us. I pray that not only would we be amazed at Jesus, but that we would also see our own temptations in his experience and see how we can learn from him, see how we can learn obedience and patience and faithfulness from his examples in the wilderness. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would meet us here. We pray that you would teach us to follow the example of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. You guys can turn to Matthew chapter 3. That's where we'll be this morning, Matthew 3. I don't know if you remember reading about King Arthur and the legends around King Arthur. One of the most famous stories in English literature is how King Arthur became king. He supposedly pulled a sword out of a stone, and only the one true king of Britain would have the the strength to be able to pull that sword out. That idea is actually really common in literature and in movies. It was picked up in the Marvel comic universe, the idea of a hammer that could only be picked up and wielded by someone who was worthy. You see that idea in a lot of literature. What you may not know about is that it actually goes way back all the way back to the Bible. This concept that there would be one person out of all of the human race who would be worthy to be king, worthy to be ruler, that idea takes us actually all the way back to the Old Testament and to the book of Matthew. When we get to the book of Matthew, there is 
one man that we're looking at, a man named Jesus, a man who claimed to be king, but the question is, why should he, out of all of the human race, get to be the king of kings? Why should he be the king of Israel and the king of the world? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about that moment when Jesus metaphorically lifted Thor's hammer or pulled the sword out of the stone. We're going to look at when Jesus passed his test and proved his worthiness to be the one king of kings. What we're going to see this morning as we look at Jesus, at at this man named Jesus who came to be king, we're going to see that he was qualified to be king by his birth, he was appointed king by his baptism, and most important of all, he was proven to be king by his obedience when he passed his temptation in the wilderness. So that's where we're headed this morning. The first part of this story as we look at King Jesus actually is a review from last week. How do we know that Jesus was qualified to be the king, not only of Israel, but the whole world? Well, that's actually an Old Testament question. You have to look back at the story of the Old Testament. So we did that last week. We looked at all 39 books of the Old Testament as one story in six chapters, creation, revolt, promise, law, king, and hope, and they all point us to Jesus. They all point us to a a seed, a descendant of Abraham and David who would bring all of God's blessings to the world and rule as the eternal king. And and that message in the Old Testament that you're looking for this promised seed, that's why the book of Matthew began in such a weird place with a genealogy. Matthew 1.1, we studied it last week. Matthew ties Jesus to both Abraham and David to show us that he was genetically qualified to be the promised king. Had to start with lineage. He came from the right family tree. Okay, well that's great, but that's not enough because there were tens of thousands of men who came from both Abraham and David. Okay, so we haven't narrowed it enough. So the second step in narrowing things, out of those tens of thousands of men who came from both Abraham and David, God didn't choose many of them to be kings, but he did choose Jesus. God chooses Jesus to be king. He appoints Jesus as king in his baptism. And so that's where we're going to go next. Let's talk a little bit about the baptism of Jesus and and help you understand a little bit about what was going on when Jesus shows up on the scene. Look with me, Matthew chapter 3. Let's read the first six verses. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins." We meet an interesting guy in in this chapter, a man named John the Baptist. And in this introduction to John, uh, Isaiah chapter 40 is quoted. That's the capital letter text there in, in your scripture. Isaiah 40 is quoted to tell us that John's not the king. 
John isn't the guy that we've been looking forward to. John is the guy to prepare us for the king. He's the guy who would come first to get everybody ready for the king's arrival. And and John understands that about himself. That's why John keeps saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, for so many years, we have misread this. We see our kingdom of heaven and we think heaven, going to heaven. It's almost time to go to heaven. That's not what John's saying. Kingdom of heaven is the kingdom from heaven. John is saying that God's king is about to come to earth. He's going to arrive here and bring about God's kingdom on the earth. Just as God's will is done in heaven, it's about to be done on earth because the king is here. So John is telling the nation, your king is about to arrive. You've been waiting for him for 2,000 years. He's almost here. So you need to get ready. And there's two things that John tells them to do. How do you get ready for the arrival of the promised king? Well, the first thing you need to do is repent. John uses the R word, repent. Now, that word's used a lot, thrown around a lot. What does it mean? The basic meaning of the word repent, anytime you see it in the Bible, or repentance, means to turn around. It's a 180 degree turn. You were thinking one thing, you need to think the opposite. You were saying one thing, you need to say the opposite. You were doing one thing, you need to do the opposite. That's the basic idea of repent, to turn around. But what did they need to turn around? Well, anytime you see the word repent or repentance, you have to study the particular passage you're in to figure out what they needed to turn around. Because the word is actually really broad. Did you know in the Old Testament, we're told that God repents. The word is really broad. And so in any particular passage, you've got to figure out, well, what is the sense here? Obviously, when it's of God, it's not about sin. It's something else. So in this passage, what is it that they need to turn around? So we study the passage, we study the context, and what we realize is, and we studied this last week, these are people living under the law, the Mosaic law. Remember, we studied last week, the law which takes up a big chunk of the first part of your Bible, are God's rules. Lots and lots of rules. Hundreds of rules. Rules for what? Well, they're rules that told the nation of Israel what exactly they needed to do to receive God's blessings in this life. If they disobeyed the rules, they would lose out on all of those blessings. And throughout the Old Testament, which side of that equation did Israel spend most of its time on? the disobedient side. So they lost out on the blessings. That's why they were exiled. That's why they were oppressed. That's why they suffered. For hundreds of years, they had disobeyed the rules so badly that they had received curses from God instead of blessings. And so what did they need to do? How could they fix that? How could they escape the curse of the law? Well, actually, you just turn to the law and it tells you. It's really fascinating. When God gave the law of Moses around 1500 BC, he already knew how badly Israel would do. He already knew they'd blow it, and so he told them ahead of time what they would need to do after they failed. And you find that in Deuteronomy chapter 30, 
when all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations. So you've been exiled. You are being punished by God because of your disobedience. And when you and your children return, that's the word repent in Hebrew, to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I command you today. That's the law, the rules. When you come back to obeying the rules, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers and you'll take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. So when God gave the law, he knew his people would fail to obey it. So he told him, after you've blown it, And received all the curses, been exiled, been kicked off the land, been oppressed. All you need to do is repent. Come back, obey the law, and you'll be blessed again. And so when John the Baptist shows up on earth and says, repent, what is he talking about? He's telling the nation of Israel, it's time to turn away from your disobedience to the law and begin to obey the law again. Why? So you can go to heaven? No, So that you can enjoy the blessings of God in this life instead of the curses. And that's a crucial thing I want to help you understand because so many people misunderstand John the Baptist. And then in the next chapter, Jesus is going to say the same thing John is saying. When John the Baptist and Jesus say repent, they are not telling you how to get to heaven. This is not about heaven. It's about how you receive the blessings of God through the covenants in this life rather than the punishment and discipline of God. Heaven is always by faith alone. It's not through the law. You do not have to obey the Mosaic law to go to heaven when you die. Heaven is by faith alone. It's always been that way. I got a great question after last week's sermon. Somebody emailed me a question. They wondered, so before Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, how did people go to heaven? How did that work? Well, in the exact same way you go to heaven. Salvation has always been by faith alone. I put it together this way, if it's, if it's helpful to you guys. Okay, what is it that saves you? A lot of people would say, well, it's my faith that saves me. No, actually, no. What saves you is God. You are saved by God, not by your faith, which is good because you're gonna have some days when you wake up and you're not sure if you believe it anymore. It's always God who saves you in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Why does God save you? Because you're a nice person? No, because there's going to be some days when you're going to wake up and not be a really nice person. God saves you by grace. Grace means he wants to give you something good you don't deserve. That's true in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Everyone ever saved was saved by God's grace. That's what motivated God to save them. What's the basis of salvation? Is it how good you are at obeying the law? No, because none of us are. The basis of salvation is always the death of Jesus. That's true in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, how is that true in the Old Testament? Because Jesus hadn't died yet. Well, guess what? You have a God who's not limited by time. So this idea of not yet died doesn't really apply to God. He could apply Jesus' death ahead of time. And so he did. Abraham, David, Solomon, Moses, how did they get to go to heaven when they died? By the blood of Jesus. Even though Jesus had not died yet in human history, God sees all things past, present, and future. It's always by or on the basis of the death of Jesus that people are saved. Okay, what does God require of human beings to be saved? Always the same thing, faith. We have to trust him. 
Now, what exactly do we have to believe? That is the only thing that changes before and after Jesus. The content of your faith. In the Old Testament, before Jesus, what did they have to believe? Well, they didn't know anything about Jesus yet. They didn't even know the name Jesus. They had to believe that God exists and that he will keep his promises. We live after Jesus. We have more information. So what do we have to believe? We believe that God exists and has kept his promises through Jesus. That Jesus died and rose from the dead so that God could give us eternal life. So salvation is always by faith alone. That's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but that was a great question that was sent to me. I wanted to make sure I hit that. So repentance is not salvation. You you do not repent so that you can go to heaven. Repentance, as John preaches it, is what the nation of Israel needed to do so that they could no longer be under the curse side of the law and instead be under the blessing side of the law and get their nation back, get prosperity back, get peace back. They needed to turn to obey the law. Okay, so that's repentance. That's the first thing they needed to do. Second thing they needed to do was get baptized. John tells them it's time to be baptized. Baptism, again, it's not about salvation. It's not about getting to heaven. Baptism is a public demonstration of something. Now for them, getting baptized in water by John was a public demonstration of their allegiance to the king. The king is coming, John said, so we're going to get baptized to show everyone publicly we align ourselves with the king. That's actually kind of similar to what happens when we get baptized. When you guys get baptized in the little pool that we put up here on the stage, your sins are not getting washed away when we dunk you. The water doesn't have any magic power. You're not going to heaven because you got dunked. You are publicly showing all of us that you align yourself with your Savior Jesus. That you believe he died for you and rose from the dead. You are part of his family. So that's baptism. It's this public demonstration of our alignment with Jesus. And, and it's in baptism, as John baptizes people, that Jesus shows up. So this is the moment when Jesus enters the scene. So we're kind of done talking about John the Baptist. Now we're going to start talking about Jesus. So look with me, chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. So Jesus comes to John, and and Jesus doesn't need to do the first part of John's instructions. He doesn't need to repent, because he's never disobeyed the law. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he does need to do the second part. He needs to get baptized. He needs to show the world that he aligns himself with John's message. Now, John was not real comfortable about that. John didn't feel qualified to baptize Jesus. If you want to think about what John felt, it would be like if Charles Dickens walked into your freshman English class while you're talking about a tale of two cities. Don't you think your professor would feel a little awkward in that moment? (laughs) Well, why don't you come up here and talk? Because you wrote the book. Well, John the Baptist feels awkward, but Jesus says, no, I... I need you to baptize me because I want to show all of Israel that you are legit. I want to show them that you are God's man who prepared the way for me. And so Jesus gets dunked and as he comes out of the water, God speaks. So look with me at verse 16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were 
opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him, and behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in who I am well pleased. This moment, verse 16 and 17, this is the moment Jesus is crowned. This is the moment that God appoints him king of kings. And it's actually, if you think about it, it's interesting. Both other members of the Trinity anoint Jesus, appoint Jesus to be king. So the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. That's an image from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when when a person, when a man was going to be made king of Israel, a prophet would pour olive oil on his head as, as a picture of God's spirit filling his life. Now, Jesus didn't need to be anointed with oil because the literal, actual Holy Spirit came. Everyone could see the spirit descending in power upon Jesus. So the Holy Spirit visibly shows up so that everyone watching knows this is the guy. He is your king. It's not just the spirit, though, who anoints Jesus. It's also the father. God the Father says, this is my beloved son. Now we have to clarify that term because this confuses a lot of people. When Jesus is called the son of God, you know that that's literally true. You know he's second member of the Trinity. He's the eternal almighty son of God. They didn't know that yet. The Israelites did not yet know that Son of God was a Trinitarian divine title. In the Old Testament, the phrase Son of God just means king, king of Israel. Actually, David was called the Son of God. Solomon was called the Son of God. It means God's chosen king over Israel. So that's all they get at this point. They're not ready for Trinity stuff yet. I'm hardly ready for that. All they could get at this point was, this is your king. So Jesus is anointed king. So what do we have so far? Well, when we look at the life of Jesus so far, he has been qualified to be king by his birth, and he's been appointed king by his baptism, but that's not enough yet. Because you see, there were a lot of guys in the Old Testament for whom that was all true too. There were a lot of guys in the Old Testament who were descended from both Abraham and David, and were anointed by God to be king of Israel, and yet none of them brought God's promised blessings to the world. None of them fixed the problem of sin. None of them got us back to the garden. None of them fixed what was wrong with this world. Why did all of the kings of Israel, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, great men, why did they fail to bring God's eternal blessings to the world? Why? Well, because they sinned, every single one of them. Even the really good ones like Josiah, David, they broke the rules. And because they broke the rules, they failed to receive all of God's covenant blessings and distribute them to all of us. None of them could be the promised, perfect king of kings who would bless the world because they all sinned. None of them lived up to the law. Would Jesus be any different? Well, you know where this is headed. Let's get to the best part of the story. We're going to look at chapter 4. We're going to talk about how the king was proven by his obedience. We're going to look at the obedience of Jesus. That should actually say Matthew 4, not chapter 3. So look at chapter 4, and we're going to read this in parts. Let's start with verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. 
I, I want you to notice how this story begins. Who is it that sends Jesus to be tempted? It's God. Now, God doesn't tempt Jesus. That's Satan who will tempt him. But God does orchestrate this moment of temptation in the life of Jesus. Why does God do that? Well, I like to think of chapter 4 as Jesus passing his bar exam. How do you get to be a lawyer? Well, you've got to go pass a very hard test. You've got to go pass a bar exam. If you don't pass that, you don't get to be a lawyer. You will go to jail if you walk into a courtroom and try to practice law without passing the bar exam. Jesus had to pass the test. He had to pass the test that every other human being had failed. Could he stand up to temptation and obey the law? And so God is giving Jesus this opportunity. The Spirit sends Jesus out in the wilderness to pull his sword from the stone, to have his moment of testing, to show us that he is worthy to be king of kings. So he goes out in the desert, and it's a place where there's no food. So the fasting is just kind of a a reality. If you're in the desert, you're not going to eat. So for 40 days, Jesus doesn't eat. And actually in Luke, it tells us that whole time Satan was tempting him. 40 days and nights of temptation. But it culminates on day number 40 with three big temptations when Jesus is at his weakest. I mean, if you think of 40 days without food, Jesus is vulnerable in this moment. He is weak and alone and beaten down. And that's when Satan strikes with these three really challenging temptations. I want to walk you through them and show you how similar they are to the temptations you faced last night and that you'll face today. These are the same temptations we deal with on a regular basis. So three temptations. First temptation, Satan tempts Jesus to satisfy a good desire in a sinful way. Look with me. Let's pick it up in verse 3. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, why is he tempting Jesus to make bread? Because Jesus is hungry. He's not eaten for 40 days. And it's important for us to understand, desiring food is not a sinful thing. This is not a sinful desire to want to have food. God designed your body to need food. It is good that Jesus wants food. This is a a good desire. There's nothing wrong with it. For Jesus, it was a desperate desire. 40 days without food, that's about as long as your body can go. He was craving calories in this moment. So it's a legitimate desire to want to eat something when you're hungry. But Satan tempts Jesus to fulfill that legitimate desire in an illegitimate way. Satan tempts him to fulfill it outside the will and plan of God. Because you see, God has sent Jesus into the wilderness where there was no food. And God hadn't yet told Jesus he could come back. God had not yet provided food in some miraculous way. And so Jesus knew he needed to wait there for God to provide, but Satan tempts Jesus, go ahead and fulfill this legitimate desire in your life. And so the temptation is, will Jesus wait on God's timing to satisfy a legitimate desire in his life? We face this all the time, with hunger for many of us at times, um, but in another area that, that all of us know, and that's the temptation towards sex. The desire to have sex is not a bad desire. Who gave you that desire? God. He programmed it into you because sex is a glorious thing, a beautiful thing. And so it is good to desire sex. But what does Satan tempt us to do? He tempts us to satisfy that good desire in an illegitimate way. 
Because you see, God has given us this good desire, but he's given us boundaries around how we can satisfy that desire. God has said, you you should only satisfy this desire within the bounds of heterosexual marriage. Anything else is off limits. And so all of these sexual temptations we struggle with, whether it's lust or pornography or, or homosexual behavior or premarital sex or adultery, all of these are an attempt to satisfy a good desire in an illegitimate way. And so when you face that temptation, the question for you, same question for Jesus, will you wait on God's timing and God's plan for that desire to be satisfied in your life? What did Jesus do? Well, Jesus chose to wait. Look with me at the next verse. Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus quotes the law, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8. It's a passage about how God sent manna from heaven, that miraculous bread that just somehow fell from the sky and the Israelites picked it up. Jesus quotes that passage because what he's saying to Satan is, Satan, I, I'm going to wait on God to provide. Even if he has to provide manna from heaven again, I trust him. When it is his time for me to have food, he will provide it. And so I'm going to wait upon him. And so Jesus passes the first test. And it's fascinating to see, if you skip ahead a little bit, look at verse 11. Jesus was right to trust God. Verse 11, the devil leaves him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. And minister doesn't mean they preached a sermon to him. It means that they took care of his physical needs. They brought him food. So literally, right after the temptation is done, Jesus' faith was vindicated. Angels showed up from heaven with food from God. God always takes care of our needs. The question is, will we wait for him to provide? Or will we try to satisfy a legitimate desire in an illegitimate way? Jesus passed that test that we so often fail. Second of the temptations. The temptation to get what you deserve. Look with me starting in verse 5. Then the devil took him into the holy city. And had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. I find it interesting and scary that Satan knows how to quote scripture better than I do. Satan can use anything to tempt you. And so he quotes Psalm 91 to make the point, a true point, that God has promised to deliver those he loves. God clearly loves Jesus. So Satan is saying, God, your father, will deliver you, Jesus. And so Satan tempts Jesus to jump off the temple. Why does he do that? What's, what's in it for Jesus to jump off the temple? Well, you've got to know a little bit about the city of Jerusalem. Temple was the highest point. It was a massive building, and it was actually the most famous building in the entire nation of Israel. And so if Jesus were to jump from the highest point of the temple, and then God sent angels to rescue him, guess what? Everyone would see it. Tens of thousands of people would see Jesus borne up on the hands of angels, and they'd be overwhelmed. He would have instant fame. In a second, he would be the most famous Israelite in the world. Tens of thousands of people would be worshiping him, following him, bowing before him. And isn't that what Jesus deserves? He's the son of God. He's the king of kings. Doesn't he deserve to be worshiped? Doesn't he deserve to be famous? Satan is tempting Jesus to get what he deserves. And that's the same thing Satan will tempt you to do. 
So often, Satan is going to try to, to get you to justify sin. You deserve this. You should have this. So reach out and take it. It belongs to you. I deserve to do well in this class because I have studied really hard. I've worked harder than anybody else I know. And all I have to do is click on that link and I will see all of the test questions ahead of time. And everyone's doing it, and I would be a fool not to. I'll be left behind. I'll get the worst grade, even though I studied the most. I deserve to have those questions ahead of time. I I deserve to keep more of the money I've earned. I've worked really hard. It's not fair that I'm having to give so much of it to the government. That's not right. All I have to do is change one little number, and I'll get to keep more of what I deserve. That's fair. Satan is constantly whispering this lie in our ears that we deserve more than we have, and so we should take it. And so Jesus is tempted. Yes, Jesus, you deserve worship. You deserve having tens of thousands of people bow before you. You are the Son of God, so reach out and take what is yours. How does Jesus respond to what seems like a very justifiable sin? Look at verse 7. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It's a perfect verse. Jesus doesn't say, Satan, you're wrong. You're quoting scripture wrong. No. Satan, you, you quoted scripture correctly. You know what that passage says. But on the other hand, it tells me in the law, again, he quotes the book of Deuteronomy, never put the, God, the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is saying sin is never excusable. It doesn't matter that I would be worshipped. It is never okay to break the law. Jesus chooses not to give in to the excuse. So he passes a second test. Let's look at the third test. Escape the pain of obedience. Look with me at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me couple things you need to notice here. First of all, this is a legitimate offer. Jesus doesn't laugh at Satan and say, ha ha, as if. No, Satan is, it tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world. Even though our God is sovereign, he has for now handed all the nations of this earth to Satan. Satan rules all nations and this nation is not an exception. All nations belong to Satan until Jesus returns. And so this is a legitimate offer. Second thing I want you to notice is this is actually what God wants for Jesus. Right? Why did Jesus come to earth? To be the king of kings. To rule all kingdoms. This is God's plan for Jesus to be the king of kings. But God's plan was going to be fulfilled in an unusual way. The eternal plan of God is that Jesus would become king of kings by going through what? That. The cross. For Jesus, the way to the throne would go through the cross according to the plan of God. Jesus would have to first become the sacrificial lamb before he could become king of the universe. But that plan that God put in place in eternity past... That's an incredibly painful pill for Jesus to swallow. Think about what it means. And and this is the crazy thing. Jesus is not like us. Jesus knew what was coming. In this moment, as Satan is speaking, Jesus knows that this is in front of him. He knows. I'm going to be betrayed, arrested, beaten, whipped, imprisoned, stripped, and crucified. 
He knows that all of that is coming. He knows this incredible agony that awaits him. I can't imagine it. I've had to have a couple minor surgeries over the last couple years, and I will tell you, I am such a baby. Every time I have a little bit of surgery, I'm nervous, like I have a hard time sleeping before it because I'm scared, and I'm looking for a way out. Like when my toe, when that tendon got cut, I was like, come on, my toe's still there. It hasn't fallen off. How much do I need to be able to move it, really? I mean, can't we just leave it be? My pain was nothing compared to what he experienced. Jesus knew it was all coming, and he feared it. It's important to understand that. Jesus in his humanity, he was fully human, meaning he knew fear. We know that because in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was betrayed, Jesus sweat drops of blood. He was so anxious, so stressed, so afraid of the pain he was about to experience that he sweat drops of blood. Jesus knew that pain was coming. Obedience is often painful, if you think about it. Obedience usually costs you pain in some way. It's painful to deny your flesh the pleasures that it wants. It's painful to stay single and lonely when you know that companionship is just one little compromise away. It's painful to keep sharing the gospel when you face ridicule. It's painful to keep serving a family member or a spouse or or a child who is never grateful, never kind to you. Obedience is painful, and so Satan offers Jesus a way out. That's what's going on here. Satan says to Jesus, hey, buddy, guess what? I'll give you all the kingdoms that you will one day have. I'll give them to you now without the pain. You can have now. You won't have to go through the cross. All you got to do is just for a second, just bow to me, just real quick, be done. And you'll get to escape all that pain. It's an incredible offer. I don't think I would have passed that test. I can't imagine the agony and tension and fear that would have been in my gut to know this was ahead of me and someone was saying, I'll let you out. One little compromise no one needs to know. And you can get out of all the pain. Jesus chose a different path than I would have. Look at verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus was not willing to escape the pain for the price of one small compromise. He was not willing to worship Satan. He chose in this moment to go through the cross. So because he has now passed all three tests, Jesus has proven himself to be the king of kings, the one man out of all of human history who would keep the law, who would not give in to sin. Now, I I can't overstate the importance of that conclusion, of what we've just arrived at, that Jesus is the one and only human being to never give in to temptation. According to to a 2015 Barna survey, 52% of Americans agree that while he lived on earth, Jesus Christ committed sins like other people. It's over half. People who call themselves Christians believe that Jesus sinned. Clearly, the publishers of this children's Bible agree. A friend of mine posted this on Facebook. Jesus saying to John, I have come to the river today to wash my sins away. I want you to know very clearly, this is heresy. The idea that Jesus sinned is heresy. If it was true, you would have absolutely no hope in life. If Jesus sinned, then he is not the promised descendant of Abraham who would bring blessing to the whole world. 
If Jesus sinned, he is not the eternal king of kings, descendant of David. If Jesus sinned, then when he died, he was dying for his own sins, not your sins. If Jesus sinned, you have no savior, no heaven, and no hope. That's why the Bible goes to such great lengths to prove to us that Jesus was sinless. He is the only one who ever passed the test of the law. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus was tempted like you, and yet he never gave in. And the sinlessness of Jesus is ultimately what qualifies him to be king of kings and to be our king. And I want us for a moment to look at that. Turn to Matthew 11 real quick. Matthew chapter 11. Here's what we're building up to as the book continues. Look at the end of, the, of chapter 11. End of Matthew 11. Famous passage. Come to me, Jesus says, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What you may have never realized is that that is king language. That is not nice guy language. That's king language. What does it mean to put your yoke upon you? It means you're a cow, and Jesus is your master. You put yokes on cattle. It is a a metaphor of submission. Jesus does not make any apologies. There's no if, ands, or buts. Jesus is king, and he deserves our submission. We are called to bow before Jesus, to give him our lives, to follow him, because he is the king. But the good news in this passage is he's a good king. He's a king who is humble and, and gentle. He's a king that will bring rest to your soul in this life, in the next life, if you'll bow before him. So Jesus is the king. We're called to follow him. And so I want to end this morning with a couple questions. I want you to, to think about King Jesus and what his kingship means in your life. My first question for you is, have you trusted in the king? Has there been some moment in your life where you have chosen to believe That Jesus is actually God's king sent to earth to die for our sins, rise from the dead, and rule forever. Have you trusted in Jesus as, as your king who has delivered you from sin and death? If you haven't yet, if you're still trying to figure out whether you believe in Jesus, whether you believe that any of this is real, I would encourage you, please come talk to me or someone else here this morning. We'd love to talk to you about Jesus, about the evidence for his life and his death and his resurrection and his kingship. We'd like to help work through your doubts so that you can come to trust in him. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus as our king, the question for us is, are we following Jesus as our king? Are you obeying Jesus in every area of your life? He's king of all of it. So are you obeying Jesus in your thought life, with your speech, in your relationships, in your family, at work, at school, with your money, with the entertainment you watch? Are you obeying Jesus in every area of life? If you're not and you don't care, you're okay with that sin, that disobedience in your life, then for you I have a warning. The same warning that we see in the book of Matthew. Sin always leads to death. That's what you see in the nation of Israel. 
2,000 years proving to us that sin is never worth the price. Now let's be clear. If you've trusted in Jesus, you will go to heaven when you die. Salvation is by faith alone. You cannot lose that. But if you've trusted in Jesus and you choose to give in to sin, you will still experience all the pain, all the suffering, all the death that Israel experienced for thousands of years. I think that's, that's one thing that, that really has been near and dear to my heart in a lot of the debates that we have over particular things like homosexual behavior or, or pornography or whatever these things are that the world says, well, that's not a sin. That's not a big deal. We say that it is. One of the things that gets lost in this whole debate about particular activities or behaviors, everything that God forbid in the Bible, he did not forbid it because God doesn't like fun. Everything that's forbidden is forbidden because it kills you. He forbid all the stuff that hurts you and hurts the people around you. The thing that you just need to take by faith, even if you don't see it yet, it doesn't make sense to you. God wants you to understand. All sin is heroin. It's fun at first, it kills you in the end. It is never worth the price. If you're not ready to believe that yet, I'll warn you, you're going to believe it one day. And unfortunately, you're going to believe it by seeing it in your own life. My prayer is that you'll take it on faith now. That you'll believe that no matter how good that sin feels, it will bring pain to you and to the people around you. And when that pain comes, you will see no pleasure was ever worth that. Now, if you are not yet following Jesus in every area of your life, but you want to, but you're struggling you keep giving into this area of sin and then you feel ashamed and you feel guilty and you commit to God, I'll never do that again, and then you do. Well, for you, I have hope. I have hope because I don't know if you noticed this, but when Jesus was in the wilderness and he was getting tempted by Satan, did you notice what Jesus didn't do? He never pulled the God card. Recognize Jesus is God. He could have snapped his fingers and disintegrated Satan. I mean, literally, he didn't even have to snap his fingers. He could have just thought, Satan, you no longer exist. And boom, Satan would no longer exist. But Jesus never pulls the God card. When Jesus is being tempted, he only does the stuff that you can do. So how does Jesus respond when Satan tempts him? All three times he quotes Deuteronomy. He quotes the word of God. He doesn't have to pull it out of his pocket or on his iPhone. He's got it in here, in his head and in his heart. And so he responds to temptation. He fights back with the truth of God's word. He uses God's truth to fight temptation and deceit from the enemy. And I would encourage you, that, that's really my takeaway for you this morning. Memorizing scripture has been one of the greatest weapons I have found in my life to fight back against temptation. It is memorized scripture that has helped me not to give in to temptation more times than I could possibly count. So you need to memorize scripture, not just read it occasionally, not just have it on your iPhone, but commit it to heart so it's ready. It's your weapon to pull out when Satan attacks or when temptation comes. So I'm going to leave you with a few passages. Just pick any of these. Memorize one of them this week. Commit it to memory. Begin to use it when temptation strikes. The first one is mine, Psalm 23. For any of you who've come early on a Sunday morning and I'm doing my mic check, you hear me saying Psalm 23. That's, that's my life passage. I say it all the time. That's my reminder that God is a good shepherd. I can trust him so I don't have to give in to this sin. 
So Psalm 23 is a great one. Romans 12, 1 through 2. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. That's directly about temptation. No temptation has taken you. James 1, 12 through 15. That's a great word about sin and death and the pain that it causes. So I would encourage you, just pick one of these or if there's another passage that's helpful to you, take some passage. That's your homework this week. I want you to memorize one passage that you will use when temptation strikes. You can be like Jesus in the wilderness. He didn't do anything you can't do. You can resist Satan. You can fight temptation if you will commit the word of God to heart. Pull it out when you are attacked. Let's pray for God's help to do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is powerful. We thank you that the truth of your word memorized and spoken is a supernaturally powerful weapon that can drive Satan away, that can answer temptation, that can give us strength and help us to follow the righteous example of your son. We thank you for the truth and power of your word and we pray that this week you would remind us each day to memorize a passage, to commit it to memory until it sinks down deep so that we can use it when temptation comes. I pray that every one of us would add a new passage to our bank of scripture memorized this week that we can use when we're tempted. Most of all, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. In the midst of a trying time, we read the news, we look at what's going on in our country, and there's so much fear, and there's so much sadness, and so much anger. We rejoice that our king is perfect. Our king is better than any president has ever been. Because our king passed the test that every other person has failed. We praise you, Jesus, that you are never evil, you are never selfish, you are never corrupt, you are always perfect in every way and we rejoice in that we thank you that you are our king now we look forward to the day when you come back to this earth and rule on your throne what a perfect ruler you will be we praise you lord jesus thank you for your perfections thank you that though you were righteous you chose to die for sinners you chose to die in our place we praise you and thank you for your sacrifice this made it possible for us to have eternal life Thank you for all you've done in the name of you, of your son, Lord God, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. I'll see you next week.